novelty will always happen i think when and not only for myself i think for any designers who just sticks to their own truth because no one can replicate their story and i think quality is just really important and no matter how beautiful the story is i think it is still important for those garments to stand the test of time and not deteriorate i love the idea of my clothes acting as these relics that can be passed on from generation to generation and that's what i mean about the importance of having a brand that has novelty and and quality as sort of core pillars I am Susie Menkes and you are listening to my podcast Creative Conversations. As a journalist reporting on the global fashion industry, I want to take you backstage and give you an insight into my world. Listen to my exclusive conversations with creatives, industry leaders, and those whose voices have some of the greatest impact. I think you might find it interesting and maybe intriguing. Even before Tebe Magugu won the LVMH Award in 2019 and had the rare honour of being presented to Ray Kawakuba of Comme des Garçons, he was already defined as unique. Not only is it most unusual for a designer based in Africa to be plucked from a group of international rising stars and brought to Paris, even rarer is a young designer with a firm head, a magazine to accompany his fashion production and a mother to help and to inspire him. At an international fashion school in Johannesburg, Tabi Magugu worked to embrace local African culture, weaving it into his own personal aspects. Inspiration came also from local history, such as the Sutu ethnic group. Tebe, I hope I got that right, and I hope you're going to tell me more about this and many other things in our conversation together. What a beautiful introduction. Thank you so much, Susie. I'm really excited for our chat. So I want to talk to you about the famous LVMH prize. You know, Tebe, you've become an international star by winning this prize of LVMH in 2019. It's run by Delphine Arnaud and opening up Africa with a fashion style that's part international and part local is something really original. But is that how you think of your work with two separate dimensions, local and public? I think I've actually always had to sit on that intersection in some way between uh, local and global. And I think it's mainly also because of how I how I grew up. You know, I had the privy of growing up in a culture and a heritage that had, you know, incredible poetry, incredible languages, you know, things that I'm so that, that are so special to me. But in the same breath, you know, I grew up watching FTV and MTV and KTV, all the alphabetic uh, international channels um, they were. And I think by pure virtue of that, I naturally would have sat on the intersection between local, which is my culture and my heritage, and a sort of globalized worldview. And I think you can really easily tell that in my aesthetic. And I think it works in my favor, just in that even though some of my stories are really personal and really specific to a time and a place and a culture, I think how I, I, I translate them, I think anyone in the world might be able to see themselves in it and not feel alienated by it, which, which I really love. You know, I think the more people who can 
love, appreciate, or at least understand uh, the clothes the better. It's it's very interesting, isn't it? Because, you know, there there's some designers who, who fight to get anything um, in any museum. First, you attended the opening of the Victorian Albert Museum's Black Fashion Exhibition, where your work is um, exhibited. I mean, it's a very interesting exhibition because it would be so easy for it to be something patronising or embarrassing. But in fact, I think it's been beautifully done, not least because it's got pieces of yours in it. And um, Omar Yemi Akoela, founder and director of Lagos Fashion Week and Style House Files, said that African fashion is something that has existed forever, something that's been part of us. African fashion now is the future. African fashion is now. Fashion that's created by our people, for our people, and for the benefit of growing and developing our economy. This exhibition that she's talking here about, the um, London one, is important because the very first time fashion from the continent will be viewed from a diverse perspective which spans centuries. Now, that all sounds very serious. In a way, I think it is. And um, I know that you yourself have felt very deeply about this. And I've got a quote from you here, which says, I feel like there's so many facets that we've been through as a continent that people don't actually understand Now more than ever, African designers are taking charge of their own narrative and telling people authentic stories, not the imagined utopias. Tell me what it was like seeing your outfit on display in this poignant exhibition in the museum. What was your first thought when you saw it? When the museum reached out uh, saying that they would like to acquire a piece um, for this incredible exhibition, I was was very honoured, especially because of the garment they chose. Um, it was from my alchemy collection, which looked at the changing face of African spirituality. Um, so, you know, we in, in South Africa have a lot of traditional doctors and a lot of sangomas, you know, people who essentially um, are in our realm, like the, the, the physical realm, and then also exist in a spiritual realm as well. And for that collection, I had spoken to quite a few of them um, who use bones um, mainly as their medium and as a way to sort of divine. So I remember I spoke to Noenta Kumalo, who was the Sangoma who did the print on that garment that the museum, museum purchased. She came to my studio and before she threw her bones, the question we both asked was what was next? And then with that question, she threw the bones and then I photographed that and then had that printed on a crepe um, fabric. So that's the pants, the, the shirt and the little apron um, you see in the, in the exhibition. So not only was I honored, I think it was a very, very special piece to me, which I'm glad the museum now has in their, in their archives. And just going back, to also what Omiyemi was was touching on. I think historically, African stories were told a lot by people who weren't African. I think it was people who came in and sort of documented and photographed, took that information and, you know, bits and pieces they could find and then be on their merry way again, you know. And I think right now, African fashion is having a moment, but in a different way. I think in a way where you can see, the stories are coming directly from the creators, from the photographers, from the designers, uh, from the artists, from the musicians, from the continent, which makes the moment Africa is having more important and more 
authentic. In the past, I think there was a real disconnect between the stories and the people who were telling it. And I think things are definitely different now. And I'm so glad that the museum is is having this very powerful exhibition. I think you're completely right. And I think it's important that we who are not African understand how much there is behind what we're seeing. It isn't enough just to look at it and say, oh, there's lots of colour. There's some really deep information that's there that we have to try and understand, which is not so easy. But luckily you're coming back, aren't you? You're coming back to the um, V&A for your Fashion in Motion show. You must tell me about it. I expect you're still working away at it. But it's pretty impressive as well that you've decided to have this debut collection, not during Paris Fashion Week, although I believe they asked you, but at the V&A Museum on the 7th of October for Fashion in Motion. That makes it a really wonderful moment for your company and, I may say, for the museum. Thank you. Thank you. No, I'm, I'm very, very excited for the show that I'm presenting at the Victoria and Albert um, on the 7th of, of October. And to give you a bit of a preview, yes, I am working hard at it. In fact, uh, right now I'm having quite a few sleepless nights just trying to put everything um, together but it's coming together so so beautifully and it's quite an interesting subject that I'm looking at this season without giving um, too much away you know when I take a lot of walks downtown there's actually a lot of clothing piles that are sort of dumped onto South Africa and I think it's also an issue that happens uh, on the continent but all these sort of second-hand even dirty, mainly dirty, actually, clothes from Europe and from America get dumped onto the country. Um, and I've been looking quite critically at that. I think on the one hand, it is terrible in that there's really big environmental implications with that. But there's a second part that I think is quite interesting that people haven't really spoken about. Like, you know, you'd be walking in town and it'd be, you'd see a woman wearing a beautiful, shresh red, traditional wrap skirt, but with a Manchester United or a Bullabong shirt, you know. So I think all these things being thrown onto the, onto the country and the, and the continent are creating really interesting conversations around like national identity. And that's something that I've just seen being in, in Johannesburg and seeing all the sort of different influences that define people's styles here. And, and that really was the starting point um, of that collection. And I think if you look at it ac academically, it, it, it reminded me when I was in university, we, I studied fashion theory. And one of the big fashion theorists we learned about was Torsten Veblen, I think his essay in 1899 spoke about the theory of leisure and the theory of luxury and how fashion, you know, and luxury starts at the very top and then trickles its way down, you know, into sort of the dumps. And with this collection, it almost wants to take the very bottom, repurpose it and almost push it back up into a luxury space. So almost inverting that trickle down theory. So yeah, that's where I'm at in the, in the collection. Your family. Tebby, your story is about your family, your grandmother, your mother, your aunt. What does it all mean to you? And was it about the experiment of growing up surrounded by these matriarchs? Or were they real teachers who, who showed you basically how to cut and fit and sew, who have made your work for you? I, I grew up around a very uh, charismatic family, like um, 
how do I say, very, very strong world, very strong women, very charismatic women. And, you know, when I was a little boy looking at how they sort of interacted with the world and just, you know, um, operated in so many uh, spaces, it was really, really, it was quite inspiring to me. And I almost in a way wanted, as, as I grew up, uh, thinking about fashion, wanted to take that strength and charisma that I saw from the matriarchal figures in my life, imbue it in a way into my clothes and, and give other um, women that sort of thing that I grew up being so deeply um, inspired by. And it was very hard not to go into fashion. I think just because of the way I, I grew up, we we, we, we didn't have much, but there was a very deep respect for clothing, you know, and I, I saw it in the way my mom, my aunt, my, my grandmother sort of styled things together, whether they were going to work, whether they were going to, to, to church. Um, there was just a really deep respect for, uh, for fashion. So I think I was always going to go into the industry, basically, is what I'm saying. And I always tell the story with my, with my mom, especially. I think she takes it a step further, her, her love for clothes, like depending on what she wears. So for example, if, she, if she was to wear something quite, sleek and, and and black with sunglasses um she actually has admitted that she changes her personality a bit like she might be uh, slightly more curt or slightly more short with people whereas if she's wearing something colorful and bohemia in its sort of proportion she'd be more approachable and that's something she said which is really interesting this idea that they use uh, fashion as armor and as a way to sort of negotiate who they are in a way it's fascinating to me to hear how you have been surrounded, although I knew it, the way you explain it, the way you've been surrounded by these women who obviously have an immense amount of personal character because that's what it's about, isn't it? When we first met, I think it was four years ago, um, I was so impressed with the depths of your culture and now you've explained to me a little bit more about where it's come from. But they've also, your your ideas for your work have also been um, included references to art and to culture, different kinds of culture. Culture. How did you bring all that into fashion designs? And I'm thinking also of your magazine, which I'd love to hear more about. Does your mother and your other members of your family, do they come into that as well? Yes. So regarding storytelling, I actually recently just made the connection that, you know, I am from the Tswana uh, ethnic ethnic group. Well, I'm, I'm between Soto and, and Tswana, but, you know, both uh, groups are revered almost for their for their storytelling and their preservation of certain stories and and know-how over and above the sort of work that they do with their hands especially in pottery so those two things storytelling and and working with the hands is actually something I've, I've come to realize that I do in my work in 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 fashion so like what I do isn't too far away from what my my culture and my and my heritage is known for and I have so many interests, you know, and I have in certain stories, whether they're good, whether they're bad. But I think when I started my brand, I wanted almost for it to be encyclopedic um, in a lot of ways. And with an encyclopedia, it's not going to show just the, you know, utopia, just the beautiful things uh, we're, we're known for. It's also going to showcase the, the corruption, the wars, the sort of darker things that have happened in our, in our history. And I think that's what I want my brand to be known for, for that people, you know, generations down the line might be able to like pick up on all these stories um, simply by interacting with the, with the clothes. Well, 
There has been a bubbling interest in Africa within the general fashion universe, but your vision is obviously very different. And you've included in your work some of just you, what you've been talking about, the darker side of Africa, corruption um, and frustration with self-seeking political figures. How easy is it to bring something that is hurting you about your country and then turning it into clothes. It sounds strange to me. Yeah, it is very interesting. And I will, you know, say that um, as celebrated as that action sometimes is, it's also uh, criticised. And, you know, I I always love engaging with, with, with people who have uh, a criticism for it. And I, and I often think, you know, I'm, almost put into places all at once and sometimes I have to swing between the one or the other and just to explain that a bit more I think as an individual I have a lot of varied um, interests that I want to speak about whether I said good or bad but then in the same breath and as a fashion brand I know that I have to be quite responsible and you know think for other people and and make and not to sort of overly alienate people. So I think um, as a brand and a designer with like my own thoughts and opinions, I have to sort of uh, sit on sit in a safe uh, space between that. But I really do enjoy getting people to think just over and above the niceties of the, the continent and the country and to really familiarize themselves with all the other facets, no matter how difficult they may be. And I think people... And that's why the things like the exhi- that exhibition is so important, especially being told by African cont- like creators in, in fashion, art, music, or all the, the disciplines and stories coming from them to showcase what it really is to be African and not sort of a dreamscape version of it, which loses all its sort of nuance. Well, tell me a little bit more about some of the things that have slightly puzzled me. I'm not sure if that's the right word, but some of your more aggressive designs seem to me to be in the period when you were creating menswear. You're probably going to argue this with me immediately. But is it very different to design and show clothes for women and for men? You started with women, then you went on to men, and the menswear seemed different. Am I wrong? No, not at all. I think definitely there's a there's a difference between between the two. I think because my interests had started in women's wear, there is a sort of language that's being built upon season after season. Um, the more I make collections for women, so when I did menswear, you know, which is 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 something I didn't starting from the from the beginning or something I didn't even train in, I think immediately there'll be those sort of differences. You know, I always dress women. So it was a very interesting and very welcome challenge to me to go into into menswear. And going into menswear was around the same time that, you know, there was quite a lot of social, uh, social political upheaval in South Africa. There were things with our ex-president that have that had just come into light, a lot of allegations of corruptions and a lot of uh, receipts and proof of that of that corruption. So I think those two uh, separate things came together to actually form my, my menswear collection. I think in terms of how it actually sort of looks, because I'm further away from menswear, I think that the proportions might have been more aggressive because I'm essentially at the end of the day not used to the, the, the male form, you know, and I think that's what made it quite quite interesting, that juxtaposition between the Tebe Magugu women's and the Tebe Magugu menswear. So they were very different. 
about haute couture? Because you suddenly got involved in that. You really surprised me um, when you said that you were working with um, Pierpaolo Piccioli, who is the um, artistic director of Valentino. And um, it was a challenge that was set by Vogue. How did you turn the designs that you were doing out of Africa into haute couture and Valentino. Explain to me, what is your great connection with Valentino? You know, it was it was such an interesting challenge and it's one, the, the programme itself I've actually been following for quite some time. I think it had its debut episode last year, uh, which was a designer swap where the designer Tomo Kazayumi sent a garment to John Galliano, uh, the creative director of Margiela and... Jean Galliano had to send a look to Tomo and the two had to sort of remix and reinterpret one another's looks in their own respective vision. Uh, and I, it was so, so fascinating when I watched it last year and it was such a complete surprise when I was asked this year by by Vogue who told me that uh, they had asked uh, Pierpaolo at Valentino who he would like to collaborate on on this project and then he 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 had mentioned that he'd like to to do it with me um and it was quite a, a speed a speedy process i think we turned out the look and well respectively myself um in my studio and Pier Paolo in his studio turned around the looks that we sent one another in a matter of of two weeks so what he sent to me um was this beautiful haute couture fuchsia pink off-shoulder uh, garment with quite a lot of fabric to it and a lot of tulle um, in it. And when I did my research, I remember Pierpaolo was talking about how when he was designing that collection, which I think was possibly 2018 or 19, possibly 18, for his couture collection, he was looking at 18th century women. So because the garment was sent to me to look at it, to reinterpret it in, into my sort of visual language, I, I didn't want to veer off too much from what Pierpaolo's intent, like, uh, initial intention and inspiration with the collection was. So I looked at who the 18th century women in Africa and South Africa were. And immediately the first person who came up was Queen Nandi, who was the mother to the king of the Zulus, uh, Shaka Zulu. So it was very, very interesting sort of putting that, uh, designing from that intersection of Italian 18th century women and African 18th century women. But I think it came together so beautifully. And maybe that speaks to how intelligent fashion is that it can stretch itself and make sense even with such juxtaposed influences. Well, I think there has to be someone who's pretty smart in the fashion world to um, get it right. I don't think it's so easy. Um, (laughs) You did tell me that to succeed in fashion, you have to meld quality with novelty. You've just spoken about that idea in a much more poetic way. But, But how do you actually translate that when you're not really working with um, haute couture and you're not really thinking about um, something in the quite distant past, how does that idea translate for what you might call more everyday clothes? I think, you know, ready to wear is my is is my medium, and I I I really love working within those those margins because my story, you know, whatever it is that 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 season, whether it's autobiographical, whether it's it's taking from history, or whether it's proposing something for the for the future will still always be ready to wear. And what's beautiful about that is that that story 
can easily travel um, to all corners of the world, you know. Um, I think instead of it being sort of presented in a very stoic sense or like a, like a museum or something, I think with Ready to Wear, what's beautiful is that people wear the stories that, um, that I'm telling. And to go back to your, your, your original question, I think novelty will always happen, I think, when, and not only for myself, I think for any designers who just sticks to their own truth, because no one can replicate their story, whatever it is they're saying that particular season will always be novel. And if it's coming from a place of honesty, I think there will always be a person, a community, a group of people, retailers, whoever, buyers, that will always gravitate towards it because it's proposing something new by pure, pure virtue um, of it being a sort of personal, uh, well, how do I say, personal to the designer. And I think quality is just really um, important. I think no matter how beautiful the story is, I think it is still important for those garments to stand the test of, of time and not deteriorate, you know, uh, throughout the years. I, I love the idea of my clothes acting as these relics that can be passed on from generation um, to generation. And that's what I mean about the importance of having a brand that has novelty and, and quality as sort of core pillars. But where you are exceptional is that at the same time that you were thinking very deeply about the work you're doing under your own label, um, you've got all these other things that you take on. I, I, I just don't know how you do it. You've, um, I'm not sure how I do it as well. <laughs> there was the um, capsule collection of dresses inspired by South African prominent tribes. I, I was lost there. I tried really hard to follow it, but I, I hadn't got enough self-knowledge. I felt rather ashamed. Um, but then you collaborated with um, Nick Knight on a film. Um, it's a film project for Show Studio and how the body is represented somewhere where I could look less at the clothes. But then you've got this extraordinary project with the um, Richemont-backed AZ factory. It's the um, brand which began with the much love, my dear friend, Albert Elbaz, and um, it's carrying on with guest designers. And um, it's certainly extraordinary that you should be doing it. And you're, it's so interesting because your designs represented the fact that you're both from Africa, he from North Africa and you from the South. How does it all work? I mean, how can you think to do this new collection for Albert Elbaz? To, to go back to your, to your first uh, point about working in a multidisciplinary way, I think I've always um, loved how I can present um, ideas across quite a few disciplines. I use there's this fashion as the really core way I, I communicate. But then because I studied fashion, not only fashion design, I studied fashion photography as well on quite a technical level. And I studied fashion media and I did a, quite a lot of writing. I always love how I can extend the, the, the conversation throughout those various disciplines. And I think it, it, it might even connect to when I was much, much younger, um, beginning high school, I started a magazine called Little Black Book, which, you know, was the school newspaper that brought together all these elements covering fashion, photography, art. You know, I've always been really interested in, in, in all those disciplines. But to go back to the project with, with AZ Factory, you know, I, I first got contacted through Alex Koo, who was Alba's husband. 
and he had invited me to firstly do the Love Brings Love show. If you remember last year where they collaborated with all those incredible designers to pay tribute to Alba. And then I think a few months later, I got contacted by Alex again, who asked if I'd like to, because the company was restructuring, if I'd like to come on to be the first amigo, the first collaborator. And I said, of course, I've always had such a deep love and respect for what Albert does. And not only at Lanvan, but even before that, when he did Gila Roche and all the other, other brands that he had, that he had been doing. But when I was tasked with doing the collection, I, I, I didn't want it to just all be a, a, about me. Like, I, I don't like the idea of being asked to collaborate and then sort of just like a wrecking ball coming in and just seeing everything in my own individualistic design vision. You know, it's a collaboration. So, like, I think both entities or both partners have to have equal representation in a, in a lot of ways. So I began thinking about what is the common denominator between myself and, and Alba. And I think what came up quite immediately in my research was the fact that we're both from the continent. Yes, me from South Africa and him from uh, North Africa, but it's still the continent, you know, which is so full of, of, of color, so full of optimism also in a lot of ways. Yes, we speak at length about the, in my, well, in my other collections, the sort of bad side with it, but I really wanted to focus on the optimistic side of this, especially because of the times that we were in. You know, we were, we started having this conversation, you know, when the pandemic was still at an all time high. And I just wanted this collection to feel celebratory and, and confident and just joyful. So those were some of the key words I had given the, the, the design studio and that's how we came together to form the, 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 the collection you see in the end. You do so many things. You seem to do a lot of things for other people, which is quite rare in the fashion world where people have a um, history of thinking mostly about themselves. But um, I love the way when I was researching and looking to what you were doing, there were just more and more different things. And one of the ones I really loved with this um, Adidas um, tennis collection, the idea of that, I'm right, aren't I, was gender neutral um, in these things. Yes. So it wasn't men's, men and women's. But in the end, you were actually designing a collection that would be good for your mum and your aunt and various members of the family. Is this true? I think, you know, at the end of the day, and it's so funny you say that because a lot of people had asked me why Adidas, uh, the, the worlds are so separate. And I was like, you know, at the end of the day, like what I do, what I'd like to be known for is, yes, I can provide beautiful clothing, but they still have to age you day to day. I don't want to design anything that you feel imposes onto you or hinders you in a sort of way, you know. So functionality is really important to me. And those are the same sort of building blocks and tenants that Adidas use when they're designing their own collections, that idea of functionality and that idea of of performance. So I think there are already synergies in a lot of ways that make sense between the collaboration um, I had with Adidas. And, you know, just for a bit more context and information around it, when we started the, the collection, 
we felt like it was really important um, for it to feel inclusive and we used a lot of smart fabrications as well. And I'm really proud of certain developments like we had, you know, for modest women, we designed um, swimwear equipped with like a swim cap hijab that sort of pulls the hair back and has clips um, inside and also making sure things like sizing goes up to four extra large. You know, I think sometimes fashion does love to say that it brings everyone along um but i think it still leaves quite a few people on the on the margins um and with this collection i really wanted it to you know in my capacity to address some of those lacks i'm going to be very discreet and not ask you how you enjoyed um showing anna winter her favorite sport um, she being loving so much the US Open and all those other things. Um, but I'm not going to ask you unless you specially want to talk about yeah. it. <laughs> um, well, I'm not sure she's heard about it, but I do know she loves she loves uh, tennis and has been watching the, the US Open quite closely. But, you know, in terms of my own reference of tennis, it was actually quite an interesting learning curve because... You know, I'm from a place, not, I think not only as an individual, but I think as a country, we are more sort of, we identify more with the more aggressive sports. So I think things like rugby, things like football are sort of more national sports than, than tennis. So it is a very interesting uh, challenge to immerse myself in what makes a great tennis dress, what makes, what, what fabrics are best for movement. So that's improved my own sort of references in terms of of tennis which i'm really appreciative of well of course fashion is quite violent isn't it there's everybody fighting for this and that but um you have had success with them um, some quite famous people tell me about when rihanna chose one of your outfits to announce the launch of fenty beauty in africa did you work closely with her on that or was it that she saw your things and thought they would be perfect to wear I think it's the latter. I think she and her team had thought that in announcing uh, Fenty Beauty going into Africa, it would be really important to wear an African designer. And I'm incredibly honored that they, 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 they chose the brand. I am a deep admirer of, 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 of Rihanna. I know every single one of her lyrics, every single one of her fashion moments, you know, so I, I really do look up to her. Um, what's very interesting about that, though, is that even though it got released maybe two, three months ago, they had actually shot and sourced that garment mid last year you know so they worked quite in it they were quite in advance um so yeah i'd love to say that i worked with her quite closely on that but um i think they had seen they had felt that working with an african designer was really important as they prepared to launch fenty beauty onto the continent and working for um az didn't you also um, work there with grace jones didn't she ask for something that very energetic, something that she could move in? Yes, it was this beautiful uh, caftan, which a lot of the silhouettes were were almost a hybrid between the silhouettes and proportions that I grew up with seeing um, on my family. And some of the proportions that I had in my research saw that Alba had also had fond memories um, of. And I think it was really important for Grace to feel like she could um, move around. That's why we felt like the caftan was probably the best garment for that. And the print is quite beautiful. It's this sort of charcoal black uh, caftan and across it, 
it looks like a like a red splatter but if you lay out the garment it's this meerkat that's in the action of jumping and meerkats are an animal uh most associated with with South Africa, especially for people who come here to um, hike and go on safaris, they do a lot of meerkat um, spotting. And that, that, that garment was chosen for grace by Mari Paul, who is an incredible photographer and stylist who captured the most enigmatic people from the, from the eighties, from the nineties, like Andy Warhol, Grace herself, you know, so it was just a beautiful alchemy, how that look went from the AZ, uh, factory studio, um, onto, onto Grace Jones. other exciting things have you got coming up? I hear that you're collaborating with a Hollywood star. Tell me more. It's where you saw me actually in Paris. So it was at, at Maria Grazia's studio. Remember when we ran into one another at Dior, you were leaving a meeting and I was going up to go see Maria Grazia. Anyway, for two years now, actually, it, it's two years because the pandemic struck and we had to give it a bit of a rest and a pause. We have been working on sort of just six pieces, a collaboration between myself and Dior. And all the proceeds from that will go to Charlize Theron Africa Outreach Program. You know, Charlize Theron is a fellow South African and she has a really incredible charity here in in South Africa called the Charlize Theron Africa Outreach Program, um, which fights HIV and AIDS and was established in 2007. And they sort of isolate or recognize um, community leaders and grassroots leaders to equip them with resources and, and, and funding. Um, so it's a collaborative effort between myself, Charlize Theron and Dior. It's quite fab. I get the feeling that Everything inspires you, that wherever you look, wherever you go, whatever you hear, you, you think of it in terms of what you you will do with it, or it, it makes its own um, way of doing it. I'm rather intrigued to know what we were um, in Paris together, and we went to see an exhibition, which was uh, an exhibition of jewellery, but it was all based on nature. And um, yes. it was it was extraordinary. Did, did you actually make anything out of it? I mean, I walked by and thought how everything, interesting everything was, but you're a creative person, extremely creative. Did you look at those things in the museum and think how you could incorporate them in some way into how you make clothes? Um, you know, also thank you for, for taking me. I had, such a, I had such a lovely day that day. I think it was so inspiring because I think it supports my own design approach. Like I love taking the idea of things that might be overlooked things that might be considered more on the mundane side, reinterpreting them and pushing them into an elevated uh, luxury space. I, I, I see a lot of the objects that you and I saw, the, the jewelry, the original inspiration for them was a few plants, certain animals, some quite bizarre in choices like shrimps or something that one can easily overlook. But then if you cast that in Italian glass or diamonds of whatever carrot like i think that's where things become interesting sort of meshing together these disparate things and i think that's where real magic happens and i think i do that all the time um in my brand i grew up also in a certain way where 
things can get overlooked, things seem mundane, sometimes even things that I was back then embarrassed by, you know, but now that I've grown up, I like to sort of analyze it and see how I can move it into my world and into a luxury space. I, I, I see it with a lot of South Africans who engage with my work, like they see a lot of familiar things that they all had in their homes, whether it's a certain print on a laminated floor or like the a certain texture that they grew up with in the home, but then they see it presented like on the collections, like for Paris Fashion Week, or, you know, a lot of the references will be in the show that I'm doing at the Victorian Albert Museum. I love that. I love that idea of disparate things being brought uh, together, almost merged together. I've got one last question for you, something that really intrigues me, and that is your relationship to blankets. I found a statement from you when you said that blankets are political and a very big part of culture. Did I get that right? What 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 does it mean? Well, <laughs> I think um in in South in South Africa blankets take on a really special meaning. The blanket that I had that I was wrapped with as a as a child like shortly after my my birth is a blanket that still exists in the home today, you know, that gets passed on from generation to generation. So like it's almost a uh, representative of of so many things, so many memories, so many people who've come before and have sort of come through that blanket in a lot of ways. And then even more specifically to the Soto culture where I'm from, Blankets are a very big part of our culture. I think um, functionally, the the Soto people, there's a lot of herders who have to wear blankets because when you're on such high terrain, um, it gets extremely cold. You know, a lot of the mountains in Lesotho snow, like they, they have the ice, the ice caps on it. So like there's that functionality as well. But they also take on a traditional and, 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 and cultural slant. But being a fashion designer, as as, as you say, I, I do think about functionality quite quite a lot, you know, and as proud as I am to be Soto, um, I can't exactly be wrapped up in a blanket day, you know, on, on a day to day that goes back to that thing where I don't want my clothes to sort of hinder um, anyone. They have to work with you and not sort of like you're, you're, you're carrying it or it's like hindering upon you in some sort of way. Um, so that's why in the brand, I, I took the motifs that are associated with the Basotho blanket and the, you know, the blanket of my people. Um, and I had it rewoven instead of in a really heavy, almost overbearing wool. I moved it into a ready to wear space where we re, we, we wove it in the country in a cotton jacquard, which is much lighter and, you know, fashioning it in a silhouette that has sleeves, that has something that you can easily wear. Um, and I, and I love that idea that, I am Soto, but I can bring along my, my, my culture by incorporating it into my, into my day to day. And I think that's really important because that avoids culture being lost. You know, I think especially with the younger generation who want, um, to be very, very mobile and, you know, have the sort of globalized worldview. It's very easy to forget certain things we grew up with or certain cultural things. That's why if you can have a top, a pair of pants in a, Basotu motif, but made in a lightweight cotton jacquard. It's almost best of both worlds. You can sort of operate in the world day to day, but also have your culture, bring your culture along with you. So yeah, I have a very complex, very deep relationship um, and respect for, for blankets. And Debbie, 
This is really is my last question because you've been so open and so interesting and your story is extraordinary. It's also extraordinarily speedy. And I want to ask a very simple question. Could you have done it without your family, their support, their imagination, that what they've given to you? I actually shudder to think what my life would have been and what I would have become without the support from my family. I, you know, and not, <laughs> I'm not going to make it a, a, a sob story, but like there's been an immense amount of, of sacrifice that has gone into my life, um, courtesy of my, my, my mother, my grandmother, my, my aunts, and hopefully I'll be able to like speak about it in a book, um, one day. But you know, we, we went through such harrowing, um, experiences, but like they've always made sure that I get to do what I love and it's almost come at a, at a cost to a lot of them. Just looking back at the amount of, of sacrifice that goes into getting someone to through high school and then through fashion school, you know, and that's not the easiest thing as a family to hear that like the, someone wants to go study, study fashion. There was that at the back of their head to be like, you don't want to, you know, uh, do something that's safer. But before they could even say it, they could just see the passion that I had for the industry and they made it their mission to make sure that I go through, through fashion school. So I, I, I don't, take it lightly. Um, there's been so much, as I said, sacrifice that I've gone into it. And I don't think I'd be standing had it not been for their, for their, for their support. Tebe, in fashion and in life, you've earned your support and love. Thank you. Thank you so much, Suzanne. This was so special. Thank you so much, Tebe, for your insightful words. Since we recorded this podcast, I attended your latest collection at the V&A, Fashion in Motion. It looked at a postmodern interpretation of what African fashion means, inspired by your experience at Johannesburg's second-hand clothing market. I have seen how you draw inspiration from your heritage while exploring themes of storytelling and education, as well, of course, of learning how important your family is to you. I can't wait to see you grow, you are an inspiration to our industry and to us all. Creative Conversations with Susie Menkes is produced by Natasha Cowan, music by Jörg Zuber, graphics by Paul Wallace, and edited by Tim Thornton. To find my articles, visit susiemenkes.com and susiemenkes on Instagram. If you've enjoyed the podcast, then please do rate, review, subscribe, and tell your friends. You can find me on all the usual channels.